I am very glad to begin this uh, Lenten series, which is called Faulty People, Faultless Saviour. My name is Simon Manchester. I'm a retired minister. And uh, your bishop and I have served together in the past in the west of Sydney and in the north of Sydney. And I thank God for him, as you do as well. For 30 years, I worked at St. Thomas, North Sydney, and the phrase on our advertising material was bring your doubts to St. Thomas's uh, because, of course, Thomas in the New Testament was a famous doubter. And uh, I love Thomas because he said what many of us think, which is how do I get evidence, if possible, more evidence for believing? Uh, There are days where I do believe, we say, and there are days where I'm not so sure, and there are days where things are up and there are days where things are down. And so how do we get more information? I don't know if you know the story of the man who's trying out a new parachute. And as he leaves the plane and hurtles toward the ground and pulls the chute, nothing opens. And he's moving faster and faster toward the ground. And as he's moving towards the ground, another man goes shooting up into the air past him. And the man with the failing parachute calls out to the man shooting up in the air. He wouldn't happen to know how these new parachutes work. And the guy calls back, I'm having enough trouble with my new gas barbecue. And it is like that in the Christian life. There are days of great up and there are days of great down. So our confidence in Jesus can go up or down. And um, I want to give this in this study a brief introduction to Thomas and then to talk briefly about the incident which takes place in John chapter 20 and then an insight into how we might deal with our doubts. First of all, then an introduction to Thomas. Now, Thomas is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, but he only ever speaks in the book of John. And no wonder he is accused of being a doubter, because in John chapter 11, he talks about how he'll probably die. And then in John chapter 14, he says, you know, there's not enough information. And then in John chapter 20, he says, well, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose unless I see the marks in his hands and the wound in his side. Now, before you criticize Thomas, what is remarkable about him is that after he met the risen Jesus and was persuaded, he began to preach the news of Jesus far and wide. He went, for example, to Syria to what we would call now modern Iraq and Iran. And he then went on to India, where he conducted an extensive ministry and was almost certainly, according to tradition, stoned to death in Madras. So something changed him from being fearful to faithful. And that something, of course, was someone, the person of the Lord Jesus. And there's no other explanation for somebody who was so afraid and unsure, becoming so courageous and sure. Uh, This turnaround of Thomas and the turnaround of the disciples has helped many people to be more confident that Jesus rose from the dead. One example of this is Charles Colson, who was Richard Nixon's legal counsel. And he was converted around the Watergate debacle And he began a ministry called Prison Fellowship, helping people who'd been in prison uh, to believe and to keep going when they were released. Now, Colson was greatly helped 
by the change of the disciples, which is recorded in the New Testament, because he had worked with men and uh, in the war he had worked with men. And he said he'd never seen men shift from fear to faith as these disciples did without very good reason. And he'd never seen men go to endanger themselves for a cause that they were dubious about or considered to be based on a lie. But Thomas was wonderfully transformed. So there's a little introduction to the man of Thomas. Secondly, the incident which takes place in John 20, verses 24 to 29. I'm going to read the verses in John 20 for you. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. You see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas was away on the evening of the first Easter day. We have no idea why. But the ten other disciples told him that they had seen Jesus alive and well. And Thomas, as you just heard, made his famous condition, unless I get to see and touch, I'm not believing. Now, so many people think this is admirable. And of course, it is very uh, likable in a way. Uh, We tend to say seeing is believing, which sounds as though we're wanting to be sensible. Uh, We will say something like, unless I have some evidence, some empirical evidence Unless somebody can prove it in front of me, why should I leap into the dark, etc., etc. But I want to say to you, dear friends, that nobody really lives this way. Nobody really demands proof of every step of faith. Uh, Who do we know who says, unless this aeroplane is proven to me to be safe, I'm not catching it? Or, Or who says, unless I see the storm which the weather predictors have predicted, unless I see it coming, I don't believe it's coming. Or which of us says something like, the family are coming for a special dinner, unless I see them on the road, I'm not going to prepare the food. Or unless I see the COVID virus, I'm not going to take steps to protect myself. People don't talk like this. They don't live like this. A huge amount of life is listening to reasonable evidence. And Thomas had 10 good friends. And so when Jesus came a week later, and the 11 were now together, Judas, of course, had gone and hung himself. Did Jesus congratulate Thomas? Did he say to him, Thomas, you're the only sensible disciple I've got. Good on you for insisting on seeing I appreciate you. He did not. 
He did patiently show Thomas his wounds. Thomas was then completely overwhelmed. And we could imagine him falling on his knees or face and saying, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus gently scolded him. In chapter 20, verse 29, he said to him, do you believe because you've seen? I tell you, Thomas, said Jesus, there is a special blessing on those who don't see and yet believe. Now, Jesus is not saying I'm looking for gullible people. I'm looking for simple people. Uh, But he's saying, I'm looking for people who will trust the eyewitnesses. And you, Thomas, had eyewitnesses. You had 10 friends who had seen me and gave very reasonable, honest, trustworthy information. Uh, You don't have to be an eyewitness yourself. A great deal of life is living with the eyewitnesses who tell us. So the person who says every day, I must see before I believe, is not being clever. They're just being annoying. But the person who says, I may not have proof in front of me, but I do have reasonable evidence being told to me. That person is sensible, realistic and blessed by God. You remember, for example, that Abraham in the Old Testament was told by God, go to a land. He couldn't see the land, but he took God at his word. You remember that God said to Moses, go and get my people out of Egypt. He couldn't see the rescue, but he took God at his word. The prophets were told to speak about things that are to come, and they couldn't see the things that were to come, but they they took God at his word. Or John the Baptist, prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist starts preaching, Jesus is coming before he sees him come. But he took God at his word. Or Paul the Apostle, going and reaching the nations with all the costliness of that mission, but he took God at his word. So for 2,000 years, people who have not seen Jesus Christ, like me, I've not seen Jesus Christ, will trust the word of those who have seen him. I remember my old boss, when I worked in the UK, he used to say, can you imagine an accident taking place on a street corner? And the police turn up and they say to the crowd that's gathered, look, could you please put your hand up if you saw what happened? And a whole lot of people put their hand up. And then the police say to them, would you please go home? We don't want to talk to you. We don't want to hear from you. Now, did anybody turn up late, perhaps an hour or two after the accident? We'd really like to hear from you. That would be ludicrous. And yet there are so many people today who will say, we're not interested in what the eyewitnesses said. We're interested in what we think. Those who are there, who saw and heard Jesus, well, we're not listening. We're not interested in what they say. And it's a great mistake. It's a great mistake. We should be listening carefully to those who were the eyewitnesses. Uh, Why did Jesus, however, bend to Thomas and show him the wounds? And the answer, I think, is because he wanted to leave an eyewitness among the eyewitnesses, including one who was slow to be persuaded. Uh, He wasn't looking for gullible disciples, not at all. But he wanted to include this Thomas as a reminder to us that even the difficult to believe people were persuaded by Jesus face to face. And so we who feel every now and again like saying we need to believe uh, by seeing, we can say thank God for Thomas because he said what I am thinking and he was changed 
so that now I know Jesus persuaded the ten and the demanding Thomas. In other words, he convinced Thomas, he satisfied Thomas, and therefore we can be even more encouraged. Remember, friends, you may not get proof, but you will get superb evidence. And there is a great difference between proof and evidence. Reasonable evidence is worth running with. You may not get to go by sight, but you can go by the perfect promises of God. Someone has wisely said, God has not given to us a watertight argument for the Christian faith, but he has given us a watertight person, Jesus. And as you read about him, and as you read what he said, and read what he did, you will find that he is the watertight person on whom you can depend. I visited a lady recently and um, I said to her in the course of the conversation, you've been in the church for a very long time. Do you believe that Jesus really lived? She said, yes, I do. I said, do you believe that Jesus really died? She said, yes, I do. I said, do you believe that Jesus really rose? She folded her arms like this. She closed her eyes and she shook her head. And I thought to myself, what a strange thing to be coming week by week to a church to sing, to praise, to rejoice when nothing has really been victorious. 1 Corinthians 15 says that our faith is empty if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There's there's no forgiveness if he didn't rise from the dead. There's no future. The people who've died have perished and there's nothing to say, nothing to declare. Bring home the missionaries. Close up all the churches. If Jesus has not risen, there's nothing but moralism and ethics. There's no gospel There's no eternal life. There's no glory to come. But he did promise to rise, Jesus, didn't he? And he kept his promises. The tomb was empty. He then began to appear to a whole range of people, skeptics, supporters, few, many, indoors, outdoors, evening, morning. And the church then took off in a remarkable way, began to spread wildly, around the world and continues to spread around the world and the experience of everybody who trusts themselves to Jesus is that he's faithful alive and well and welcoming and forgiving so notice how Jesus tells Thomas that seeing is not crucial to believing and then the very next verses in John 20 John the writer says to us the reader this is written so that you may believe. You may not see, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have eternal life in his name. What an incredible thing. You can take up the words of John's gospel, just the gospel of John, and the writer says, I've given you enough information for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ and because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you have eternal life. Do you realize that if you're on a desert island and a bottle washes up with John's gospel inside, you've got enough information to go to heaven. You've got enough information to enter the family of God and one day to be with the Lord Jesus. So that's the incident that took place in John chapter 20. And now I just want to say something quite briefly to you, which is an insight on the subject of doubt. We will always have doubts. Because we live in a fallen world, the devil is active, the world is very tricky and confusing, deceptive. 
We're easily persuaded. We're easily tricked. We're easily tempted. We must expect to have doubts. Of course, there'll be times of growth where we're more confident. There'll be times where we'll look back on our doubts of the past and we'll say, I don't have those doubts anymore. But we will always have certain doubts. And it's even possible for a person who's utterly secure to be on their deathbed and tormented by fears and doubts, not because they've stopped being safe, but because they've stopped being as sure as they were or could be or will be. So we must recognize the doubt is going to be a part of life. This is a fallen world. Often when doubts come, we have to work out what to do with them because they make very good servants. In other words, if we will use the doubt to check the foundations of the faith, we will often find that we're even more grateful, even more certain, even more hopeful as a result of doing our homework. In other words, the doubt can be a help to us. Uh, I remember at a certain time in my own life reading that little famous book called More Than a Carpenter. I remember sitting on a beach reading More Than a Carpenter and getting to the end of the book and just putting it down beside me and saying, you'd have to be crazy not to be a Christian. The evidence is so great. Now, those little books don't always help unbelievers to believe, but they certainly help believers to be glad they believe. And I would recommend getting a little book like that if you want to bolster the, the foundations of the faith. Let me tell you a little bit quickly about doubt. Doubt is not questioning like a child, the child that says, what about this and why does this happen and how does this happen? That sort of questioning can be very healthy. As long as the child is not asking the same question every single minute, in which case you know that they're probably not interested in the answer. And there are people, of course, you know, who ask questions and they're not interested in the answer. They just want to escape from the consequences of the truth. So doubt is not questioning. That's unhealthy. It can be healthy. It can be unhealthy. Doubt is not unbelief. You remember the Pharisees in the face of miracles and the teaching of Jesus just would not believe. So even when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11, we're told in John chapter 12 that they made plans to kill Jesus and Lazarus because he was getting in the way. He was causing people to believe and they didn't want people to believe. And so in their unbelief, they were determined to get rid of the evidence. Doubt is not like that. Doubt, healthy doubt, is where you're in two minds. You're not quite sure which way to go. A good example of this in the New Testament is where John the Baptist was in prison. I don't know if you've ever thought about John the Baptist, but uh, he obviously began his ministry at about the age of 30, and he was probably dead before he was 31. And uh, as he was faithfully doing his work, he was arrested and put into prison. And as he lay in prison, having told people, Jesus, the Messiah has come, he must have started to say to himself, is this really the Messiah? Doesn't the Old Testament tell me that when the Messiah comes, the blind will see and the lame will leap and the um, lepers will be healed? And doesn't the Old Testament tell me that the prisoners will be released and those who sit in darkness will be brought out into great joy? And here I am, said John the Baptist, I'm caught in my prison in great darkness. I'm not being rescued. Is this really the Messiah? And he sent his friends to Jesus and Jesus sent back some disciples and said to John the Baptist, remember what's happening. 
The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are being healed. Don't give up. Don't fall over. Don't stop believing. In other words, Jesus said to him, you've got enough information. Not all your questions are being answered, but you've got enough information to go on. Don't stop trusting me. Another example is Philip around the Last Supper in John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I'm leaving. You remember those famous words? I'm going to my father's house. And then Philip suddenly turned around and said, Lord, just show us the father. If you could just show us the father, we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you such a long time? You don't realize who I am. Just look at the words that I've spoken, Jesus said to Philip. And look at the works that I've done, Jesus said to Philip. And those words and works, like two wheels of a bicycle, are enough for you to ride your faith on. You may not have all your questions answered. In fact, we probably never will have all our questions answered. But you've got enough to go on, enough to believe on. So that's doubt. Doubt is not questioning. That can be healthy. It's not unbelief. That's usually pretty well unhealthy. But doubt is being in two minds and not sure which way to go. Now, what is faith? Faith is not being gullible or foolish. It's not a leap into the dark as if you've made an insane decision. Uh, faith has facts. You sit on a chair because it looks reasonably sturdy. You catch a train because you trust the system. You, you give yourself to a spouse because you have done the homework of the, the, the engagement time and you know that this person is trustworthy. Faith is not a leap into the dark. It's a sensible entrusting based on good information. Faith is also not just orthodoxy. It's not enough for you to walk into a building, sing a hymn, say the creed, tick all the boxes and say, I said them. It's not assent, which, which Jesus is looking for. Faith is more than just assent. Even the devil himself believes that there is a God, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus lived, died and rose. He believes in heaven. He believes in hell. He believes the scriptures of the word of God. He believes that prayer is important, but he's not related. He's not serving. He's not surrendered. And so we're not just looking for assent. No, faith is a wise entrusting of yourself. It's where you go to the doctor, you're persuaded that you have a need, you're persuaded that he has the ability to meet the need, and you place yourselves in his capable hands. It's where you put your car on a smaller scale into the hands of a mechanic, knowing that he or she can actually do the job. It's where you entrust your home and the look of your home to a painter, knowing that uh, this person has the qualifications and the house certainly needs some help. Or it's where you entrust your plumbing or your electrics to a tradesman and you say, take over, I'm putting it into your hands. And the wonderful thing about becoming a Christian is where, like an engagement, you collect the information about Jesus. You get to the point where you say it's reasonable, it's sensible, I don't know everything, but I know enough. And I'm now going to say, I will to Christ and entrust yourself to him. And in prayer, you say that to him.
you're trusting yourself to a water, watertight person. You've suddenly found that as you entrust yourself to him, he forgives you. He adopts you and he will carry you through into glory. I remember reading the story of David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, uh, who went through such terrible, terrible times as he pioneered the mission work in this very difficult and dangerous country. And he came back to England to enlist more people for the cause of the gospel in Africa. And at one of the meetings, somebody put their hand up and said to him, why do you do this? Why do you go into such difficult territory for this gospel? And David Livingston said a very interesting thing. He said, first of all, he said, he's told us to make disciples, Matthew 28. He's told us that he will be with him, that he will be with us forever, Matthew 28. And then he said this, it is the word of a perfect gentleman. And confident in that quaint phrase, confident in that perfect gentleman of Jesus, David Livingston went forth. And the Lord Jesus did use him to make disciples. And he did go with him always. And he will do the same for you. Because in the end, as we see in the life of Thomas, Jesus really is alive and well. We have reasonable and wonderful evidence to trust him. And when we do, we are able to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. May he bless you. Amen.